Let's get back to Genesis. Last time I preached out of Genesis, we finished up Genesis chapter 26. So we are going to pick up today at chapter 27, and we're going to try to actually cover that entire chapter plus about five extra verses, because that's kind of where the natural break of the narrative is. So let's see, 47 verses and five more, so 52 verses. So it'll be a significant piece of scripture, so we're not going to have time to dilly-dally much this morning. So let's pray and then we'll uh, briefly review what we covered last time and we'll get into our text. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us great things from your word today. God, I ask you'd use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let this exegesis be accurate to your word and to your spirit. May it magnify the truth of your word. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you. God, we know that you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we ask, and all God's people said, Amen. So in the first 11 verses of Genesis 26, this is part of what we covered last time, we found out that God had sent a famine to the promised land. That was a big deal because that's the land of milk and honey, and all of a sudden there's a famine there. And remember, the famine was not on account of what they had done. There were famines later. Joel talks about, I mean, the entire book of Joel basically is about that, for example. There were famines in the promised land that came about because of the sin of the people. Don't get me wrong. But this famine does not seem to be that. This is a famine that's in the promised land, but it's not because of the sin of God's people. It wasn't because of anything Isaac had done. And so Isaac packed up and he headed south toward Egypt because Egypt had the Nile River and therefore grain. Egypt was where you went to get away from the famine because even in famine times, Egypt would have grain. And so Isaac had packed up and he starts heading south toward Egypt to escape the famine. And he gets as far as Gerar, which is the capital city of the Philistines. And God speaks to him and says something very strange. He says, stay put. Now that's a very strange command when you're living through a famine. Uh, God, there's not a lot of food around here. Stay put. God tells him, stay right where you're at. I know the famine's on you, but if you'll stay here, stay put, and trust in me, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to bless you even through this famine. And so Isaac shows faith in God's word, and he does exactly that. He stays put. He doesn't travel any farther south. He never leaves Canaan, which is the promised land, remember. He stays there in the promised land. Remember, Canaan does not have a lot of rivers. This is not like Egypt that has the Nile. Canaan is almost entirely dependent upon rain. And when you don't get the rain, you don't get a crop. You don't get the wheat harvest. I know something about that. I said this last time. I grew up on a wheat farm out in western Kansas. And I can remember one year we had paid for all the seed wheat and all the fertilizer. We'd go out and we'd put all the seed wheat in the ground. And we got so little rain that year that the wheat didn't even germinate. It didn't even sprout. Let me tell you something. That is hard. On a, You have a couple of those in a row. You won't own your farm anymore. You understand where I'm going with that? It's tough. And that's kind of what the promised land is. The people of God in the promised land are entirely dependent upon God. And if you can't see the parallel in that, you're probably spiritually blind. You're entirely dependent upon God as well. So God tells Isaac to stay, and he does. He stays right there in the area of Gerar, which was the capital city of the Philistines. But he does let his fear of man eventually get the better of him. 
And he ends up lying to the Philistines about his wife. Right? He says, well, actually, she's my sister. Which is, remember, he's just repeating the folly of his father. Abraham had done that twice. So it's, you know, it's kind of one of those, the apple didn't fall far from the tree on this. His lie is eventually found out by the king of the Philistines, the heathen, who then calls out and rebukes Isaac publicly over the matter. Do you think that would be a little bit shaming, a little bit humiliating? Yes, certainly it would be. And yet right on the heels of that moral failure, God blesses Isaac tremendously. Isaac reaps a 100-fold harvest of grain in the middle of a famine. And that, no doubt, made Isaac a very wealthy man. If you're in the middle of a famine, nobody else has grain. Everybody wants to buy grain, and they're willing to give you whatever set price you want. Right? You can't eat gold and silver. Middle of the famine, everybody's looking how to buy grain, and now Isaac has a bunch of it. So obviously God is enriching and prospering Isaac, and he does it right on the heels of a moral failure. And I told you last time, there's a very specific reason God did that. And that was to show Isaac a very foundational truth, a foundational truth that you must learn as well. And that is, God is not blessing Isaac because Isaac is so righteous and upright and he has such moral integrity. God is not blessing you because you're such a good person. If you think that, you're probably lost. God is blessing you despite your moral shortcomings. Listen, if you're a Christian, you don't try to fall morally, obviously. If you don't care whether you're uh, living a life that is reflective of God and His holiness and His honoring of Him, you're probably not born again to start with. Okay, but even if you are born again, I have bad news for you. You're still in this body of flesh. And that means you're still going to fail. And then the question becomes, well, when I do fail, what happens with my relationship with God? Does God just kick me to the curb? Does God require, hey, you better get back your nose to the grindstone and after you've put together some time of good behavior, I'll talk to you again? Is that how it works with God? And God is showing Isaac that is not how this relationship works. You might not be faithful, but I am. God is showing Isaac, I am faithful to you in good times and bad I am faithful to you when you hit a home run spiritually, and I'm faithful to you when you strike out. And you know what the truth is? We need a God like that. Because a lot of times when we strike out is when we need Him the most. And that's what a good father does. good father doesn't get angry because his son falls and kick him out. And God is indeed a good father. So Isaac's not being blessed because he's such a picture of righteousness or integrity. No, he's being blessed because God has made a promise and God keeps his promise, period. It is God who is the picture of righteousness and integrity and faithfulness. It's God who is faithful even when his people fail, when they fumble, when they flounder. We see that in verse 12. That's the major point of the first part of chapter 26. And then the last two-thirds of the chapter basically is about how Isaac has now learned this lesson and now he's passing this lesson on. 
The last two thirds of the chapter is a picture of Isaac extending this same kind of unmerited grace toward the lost, unregenerate Philistines. The Philistines are certainly not deserving of his grace. I have what I think will not be news to most of you. There is no one on earth, no one, who is worthy of grace. There's no one. I am not worthy of people showing me grace, mercy, or kindness. When they do, it is not because I have earned it. You understand? I have a lot of Christian friends who do show me grace that I am not deserving of. And it's not because I am such a picture of moral integrity. It is because Jesus Christ is working in them both to will and do to his good pleasure. You're not worthy of God's merit and grace. You're not. And neither am I. And the people around us are not either. And yet, when God pours his grace out on us, we start being conduits of that grace to others. And that's exactly what happens with Isaac. What happens to the Philistines? They're being conniving toward him. They're being liars. They're being manipulative. They, start, they stop up his wells. It's a big deal. They're stealing other wells that were rightfully his. And all the while, they are admitting that Isaac and his company are so strong that if they had a mind to, they could wipe out the Philistines wholesale. He could have just wiped out this enemy that, by the way, was living in a land that God had already told him, this is your land. Would you have been tempted to do that? Here are these people who are wronging you. They're being conniving and manipulated. They're stopping up your wells. You're in a land. God has already told you, I'm giving you this land. This is yours. I will drive these people out. Would you have been tempted? I'm telling you right now, I would have been. They're doing me wrong. We're stronger than them. And I'm in the land that God told me is mine. Saddle up the horses, boys. We're about to put an end to this. What's Isaac do? Shows him grace. The Philistines come to Isaac and they ask him to make a covenant not to hurt them since, quote, they have done nothing but good to you and we've sent you away in peace, which is an absolute lie. And at that point, Isaac could have unloaded on them for all their hypocrisy, all their deceit, their manipulation, their evil toward him, and yet he doesn't. He holds his peace. He treats them with kindness yet again. He has been shown unmerited grace, and he is now showing unmerited grace to those who don't deserve it. We are pictures of unmerited love, grace, forgiveness, and mercy. God has extended that to us through Jesus Christ. And we should be doing the same to others as well, especially others who truly are of the household of faith. What does God do in return, by the way? Isaac takes the high road. Isaac shows grace and mercy to these Philistines who absolutely do not deserve it. And immediately, as soon as that's done, as soon as that meeting is over, one of his servants runs up to him and says, Hey, we've dug a well and we hit water. I mean, that's better than than like today, digging a well and hitting oil, right? Because that's life for the livestock. God is returning that graciousness to Isaac. And that's basically what we see through chapter 26. That's basically where we end chapter 26. We find ourselves now at the precipice of chapter 27, one of the most well-known passages in the book of Genesis. 
And we will, what we'll find is an incredibly deceitful and dysfunctional family. That's actually what we're going to find. It's kind of sad, really. It's tragic in that sense. But in that incredibly deceitful and dysfunctional family, we will also find in the midst an incredibly faithful and functional God. <clears throat> so a couple of things to start out. In chapter 27, Isaac is now 137 years old. That's old. Which he just owns it. I love that. He just tells his son, listen, I'm old. I don't know when I'm going to die. Like that's owning it. You know what I mean? I'm having trouble. I'm 43. You know, I'm learning that my body does not heal the way it did when I was 23. It's kind of a hard lesson to learn, right? But Isaac is old and he's old enough that his eyesight's all but gone. By the way, 137 is also the same age that his older half-brother Ishmael had died. So it makes sense if he's, if he's sick, he's thinking, you know what, my brother died at this age. If you're young enough, you won't understand this yet. But as you get older, you start realizing in your mind, hey, wait, this person I know, this person I love, this person in my family, they died at this age. <laughs> Am I okay? Right? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Isaac is cognizant of the fact that his brother had died at 137 and probably is thinking, well, you know, I'll... I'll probably die about the same age too. So Isaac thinks his days on the earth are nearly ended. And he's eager to speak his last words and give his final blessing to his son before he dies. But in the drama that immediately follows, we will see two things becoming very apparent, rising to the surface. Number one, we're going to see how deceptive, conniving, scheming, dysfunctional this family really is. So on the one hand, it's really a sad commentary on this family of faith. It's a sad story about how sin and deception will literally tear this family apart. And yet the second point is a point of hope. And that's the one I want to drive home with you today. That's this. Even among all the sin, deception, and dysfunction, God is still actively at work. He's still protecting, providing, and directing for his people. He's working out his will even among all of this mess. That's how good and how sovereign he is. It should give us hope. We serve a God so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. He's so sovereign that he's able to take these broken, shattered pieces and make a beautiful mosaic of redemption, restoration, and grace from it. And he can do the same for you. You may not realize it. You may not perceive it. But God's word tells us if you're a Christian today, he is still at work in you. To do and will, to, to will and do to his good pleasure. He's still at work in you. That he who began this good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. So be encouraged, my friends. You serve a sovereign God. So, with that being said, let's pick up the text at chapter 27, verse 1. Genesis 27, verse 1. And we're going to work our way down through this. 27, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see... He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. Then he said, behold, now I'm old. I don't know the day of my death. By the way, it's kind of interesting that Isaac is lying on his deathbed here. Anybody know why? Does anyone know how much longer he would live? It's interesting. 43 more years. I'm 43. He has another of my lifetimes yet before he's gone. But he's pretty certain he's about to die, which I think is really relatable. I mean, I'm just saying I've, I've had that kind of flu before, too. You know, I'm, I'm just saying 
I'm a guy. By the way, did you know that men do actually tend to get sicker from the same diseases as women? Sad. Men have ten times the testosterone production as women do, which does give us some advantages like, you know, weightlifting. It's much easier to build musculature, your shoulders and arms, than women. But the trade-off is immune function. Sad. Yeah. Women actually have greater innate and adaptive immune responses to any disease-causing pathogen. That is a true story. So, ladies, please go easy on us when we get sick. We really think we're going to die. You know? No, no, you don't understand. It was like this way with my wife. First time she got COVID, she's like, eh, I was down for a you know, few hours, eh, kind of a heavy cold. Meanwhile, I'm like, that's it. Bring the children in to kiss me goodbye. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. Right? <laughs> and here's Isaac, right? He's basically the same thing. He's looked up his symptoms on WebMD. He's pretty sure he's going to die. Right? I'm a goner. Son, I'm about to die. I'm about to die. Right? Looked him all up. Pretty sure he's got three forms of cancer and a rare blood disorder. It's all over for me, babe. But unbeknownst to Isaac, this sickness is not unto death. God's going to raise him up and give him another 43 years. But he doesn't know that at the time. And remember, God has talked to him already. When the two boys were born, God told Rebekah then, the older will serve the younger. He'd already told him, listen, I'm going to reverse the order that traditionally this works in. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to show you. I think you can see in this passage that really got under Isaac's skin. And I'm going to show you why. Even from his birth, Esau is everything a man should be. He is a man's man. He's hairy from the word go. In that culture, that was a big deal. Being hairy was a big, that was a part of being masculine. And it's, in ways it still is, right? I mean, growing a beard is not a way that you show your feminine side. Typically. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. It's true. Being hairy was part of being masculine, right? And Esau was very hairy. In fact, that's where the name comes from. And Jacob was not. Jacob was everything a man shouldn't be, right? Jacob is the consummate mama's boy. He's soft. He's, he's the softer, gentler side of Sears, right? He lives in the tents. What does that mean? He dwells in the tents. It means he doesn't want to go out and get too hot and sweaty. Go stay in the shade. You guys, go get those deers. That's great. Bring it back. I'll, I'll cook it up for you. That's Jacob. And if you're Isaac and you're looking at your two boys and you're realizing somebody's going to have to take over the family business, which is farming and ranching, it's hot, sweaty work. And also defending the farm and ranch from, you know, armed invaders. And you're looking at these two boys. It's not a tough choice. But here's Esau. He's strong. He's manly. He's everything a man's supposed to be. He's a very accomplished hunter. He is athleticism, right? I mean, he is the form of what man should be in that culture. And here's Jacob. And he's the city kid. I hate using that term. No, I don't. I actually like it. He's just soft. He's the kid who has had comfort and pampering his whole life, right? 
He's the guy putting cucumber slices and like, you know, facial cream on, right? He's, not, he's taking bubble baths. I've got a friend of mine who I, I love. He's a teacher with us over at Stratford. He told us, me and Justin and he, he and a couple others were standing around. He was telling us how much he loved bubble baths once. He was like, don't you? I was like, I don't know. I'm a man. I don't typically take bubble baths. <laughs> just, to, just to rib him, right? <laughs> but that's what's going on. Isaac is looking through his eyes. He's seeing through the eyes of man. And I got, I've got bad news for you. Guys, we do this a lot. We do. We do this in politics. We do this in SBC life. Well, there's a certain way you should look. A certain mannerism you should have. A certain dignity you should carry. And he looks at these two boys and goes, there is no way that boy is going to lead this family. And in a sense, he's right. I, I, look, Jacob's not ready to lead that family. But see, there's a huge difference between the two. Esau has everything except one thing. He does not prioritize God at all. He's got everything else. Jacob's just the opposite. Jacob has absolutely nothing to offer this equation, except he does. He realizes the spiritual significance of the blessing. He realizes the spiritual significance of God being his protector, his provider, his overseer. He's probably Baptist because he sees all of that and he's going to help God out with it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's Jacob. Like, I need this. How can I get it? That's what's going on. Esau has everything you could ever want in a man except his heart is not right. And we're going to see that little piece is not little at all. Jacob has nothing you would want in a man. He's not tough. He's not terrible. He's not skilled. He's not some great leader. He doesn't inspire confidence. He's not an intimidating, imposing figure. He's not well respected in the community. He's nothing that you're looking for except one thing. His heart is after God. And we're going to see that one thing is the one thing. Rather than God taking Esau and saying, I'll change him, he takes Jacob who loves him and says, I will train him. He's going to send Jacob through the school of hard knocks. And that's how he's going to prepare this man to lead the family of faith. So Esau talks. Remember at this point in time, Esau is just having a one-on-one conversation with his favorite son. Remember we, we saw in chapter 25 when the boys were born, we saw that uh, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, it says. Esau was a great hunter. And Rebekah loved Jacob because, you know, he's helping her around the house. He's helping her around the tents. So Isaac thinks he's going to die. He grabs a hold of Esau and says, listen, son, I'm about to die. I want to make sure I bless you. Now, remember, that is flying in the face of what God told him. God told Isaac, this is the boy and Esau is not. And Isaac goes, look, God, you must have made a mistake because I'm looking at these two dudes. This one can lead this place tomorrow. He's right. Esau has everything in the natural necessary to lead that family. He'd be a great leader if we didn't care anything about his spiritual influence. And that's what we're going to find out, by the way. 
But God does care. In fact, it's the most important piece. So Esau, Esau, Isaac grabs a hold of Esau and says, Now therefore, please, this is verse 3, Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food such that I love and bring it to me that I might eat and that my soul might bless you before I die. The King James says, bring me this venison, savory food that I love, that I might, my soul might bless you before I die. Here's something else that's really easy to miss as you're reading through this passage. I'm going to spoil this for you. I'm sorry. We often think of this scene in the way that the Sunday school pictures portray it, right? In our mind, you've got like old, decrepit Isaac. He's laying on his deathbed. And you've got this 18-year-old Esau, right? Maybe 20. Strong. In the, in the midst of his physical prowess. He's going to go hunt that game. But uh, that is not what actually is the case. Anybody want to hazard a guess how old Esau actually is here? Three. That's a guess. It's a hazardous guess. You don't want to give a three-year-old a bow and arrow. I'm just going to let you know. Unless it's got the suction cup on the end. That would probably work. 16 is what you would think. He's actually 77. But um, that's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? Son, I want you to go out there and hunt me some of that game, that stuff you know I love. Take your bow and arrow. Go out there and get me some of that good food. He's 77. He's not a whippersnapper. And still living at home, by the way. Talk about failure to launch. (laughs) 77. Anyway. You might not catch that just from reading the text, though, right? So if you're 35 living at home, there's hope for you, man. So was Jacob and Nisa. 37 years has actually passed from the end of chapter 26 to the beginning of chapter 27. And in chapter 26, the twin brothers, Esau and Jacob, were 40 years old. And Isaac was 100. Now, 37 years later, Isaac's 137 and the boys are 77. They're not little youngins. And they're fighting over the family inheritance. Imagine that. That doesn't happen today anymore, does it? No wonder Isaac would be suspicious later. The food was brought to him so quickly, right? How'd you find this so quickly, right? I mean, think about Joe Biden going out for a bow hunt for a deer. He's not taking a bicycle. How long is this process going to take, right? It's probably not going to be a 10-minute hunt. Let's go on. Verse 5. Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. So here's Rebecca. She's overhearing the conversation she's not invited to. And she begins the scheming. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it back. 6. So Rebecca spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make me savory food that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. According to what I command you. So the wheels are turning now. And, and we have to remember this. The family business is at stake here. Right? In that day and age, the inheritance was not going to be divided 50-50 between the two boys. How is it going to be divided? Go out there. It's not 50-50. It's in thirds. The oldest boy gets the double portion. He gets two-thirds. The youngest is going to get what's left. And he doesn't just get two-thirds, by the way. He gets the best two-thirds. And he becomes the successor. He's the heir. He's the progenitor now. Okay? The inheritance, that's why, that's why they're always talking about a double portion. 
That's why Elisha, by the way, was saying to Elijah, I want a double portion of your spirit. He was not saying, make me twice as strong as you or twice as powerful. He was saying, I want to be the successor of your office. When you're done here, I want to be the guy to take over. Take me in like your son. That's what he was saying to him when he was asking for a double portion of his uh, spirit or for, of his anointing. That was part of the custom of the day. So in this instance, whoever got the blessing would not only be blessed by God, would not only be watched over by God, protected by God, provided for by God, but would also end up becoming the leader of the family, the leader of the farming and ranching operation, if you will, right? He's he's the head of the Ponderosa. And I I really, truly think that's a large part of why we see the fighting between Rebecca and Isaac here. Isaac knows this boy cannot, he's too soft, he cannot be the guy that leads this thing. Right? Jacob's totally unqualified for the job. Esau is eminently qualified, but Esau is a total heathen. He's a self-centered egomaniac with a boiling hot temper. So he might be very qualified in the natural, but he's a spiritual and moral train wreck. And that is a much bigger issue than Jacob's soft demeanor. I think Isaac is still holding out hope that God will capture Esau's heart and that Esau's fearsome and awe-inspiring reputation will take this family name to new heights. I really do. Surely nobody in their right mind would cross a man like Esau. He's probably right. What about a softy like Jacob? Who's going to respect the mama's boy? The family name would become a ruinous laughingstock. And in a sense, he's right. Like I said before, Jacob is too soft, he's too pampered, he has no skill with livestock, he's got to toughen up. And that's exactly what God has in mind for him. That's exactly what God has planned for him. As the old saying goes, God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. That's exactly what he's going to do with Jacob. Exactly what he's going to do. If you ask me, by the way, uh, Jacob and Rebecca were obviously Southern Baptists because they're pragmatists, right? As long as it works, it must be okay. I know God said this. God doesn't look like He's doing it our way or in our timeline. So hey, listen, let's help him out. Like Jacob would have been a perfect SBC president or maybe a seminary head. His mom could have been the committee speaker, right? Or maybe an ordained pastor if they lived in California. Is that too soon? Probably too soon. In case you're wondering about our SBC annual convention out in Anaheim, California, just ended this week, and the results were as underwhelming as you might expect. So, giving me good material, though. So let's go on. Verse nine: Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kinds of the kinds, two choice kids, baby goats, kids of the goats, and I'll make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you'll take it to your father that he might eat it, and then he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I will seem to be a deceiver to him. I love the way that's phrased. You'll seem to be a deceiver? And I'll bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. Gosh, Jacob, maybe you'll seem to be a deceiver because you are a deceiver. 
But notice what Jacob's concerned with. He's concerned with how things seem. He's not overly concerned that he's literally being a wicked deceiver to his dad who can't see very well. He's much more concerned about how things seem. What will people think of me? How will they see them? How will they see me in their eyes? Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day and, frankly, like the way that we can be too. We can be really concerned about the way things seem rather than the way things truly are. There's a lot of that in our culture today. We judge by appearance. We are a culture motivated and captivated by selfies and perfectly manicured social media posts. We are in love with our image. There's an image we need to project to the world, even if that image is absolutely false. We're in love with ourselves and our images and how things seem, especially if it doesn't reflect reality. We don't want to see people... We don't want people to see that we've just got that ordinary life. Just an ordinary life, just following Jesus. Got to glam it up. Jacob would have been the same kind of man. Doesn't bother him at all that he's being conniving and deceptive. What bothers him is dad might find out he's being conniving and deceptive. Doesn't bother him at all that he's involved in his sin. He's he's much more concerned that nobody finds out about it. Because gosh, what would people think? What a pharisaical ideology. My stepdad was uh, fond of quoting to me Walter Scott's epic line, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we start to deceive. He liked to tell me that. And it's true. If you don't tell a bunch of lies, you don't have to uh, remember what lies you told and what lies you told to whom. It's a lot simpler way to live. A lot less stressful way to live. My dad was fond of saying, time is the best friend truth ever had. Given enough time, the truth will always surface. And he wasn't wrong. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, a little lie is like a little pregnancy. You might not notice it at first, but as time goes on, it's going to become apparent. And that's what's going on here. Rebecca has concocted a lie, a scheme, a plan. And Jacob's like, I don't like this. So what does Rebecca do to get him to go along with it? Listen, 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 listen. i got a great plan. It's going to work out. So his mother says to him, verse 13, Let your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. Oh, okay, okay, mom. Basically, she's saying this. Let your curse be upon me. Don't worry. If we get found out by dad or Esau, I'll take the blame. It's not going to come back on you. You don't have to worry about it. I'll cover for you, buddy. That's what she's saying here. By the way, remember that she says that. Don't worry, folks. She doesn't mean it. Okay, she's lying like everybody else in the family. Later in the chapter, when they do get caught, she's going to throw Jacob under the bus and listen to the wheels bump on him. She's going to do it to save her own hide. Just wait. We'll get there. When he, he went and got them and he brought them to his mother and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebecca took the choice clothes. I love how it says this, the choice clothes. The choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were in her, the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. The choice clothes here are the most aromatic. You would not think of them as the choice clothes, okay? They smelled like the field. In other words, they stunk, right? Would you like to know one way hunters can cover their own scent so the deer and other game don't smell them? There's some great tricks, like the, the best, I like this one, you sit by the fire, let the smoke, 
Right? Like, like that's the best scent of the other ones I've seen. Or you can, you know, just use a little dough urine. I have literally seen predator hunters who'll take their ghillie suits and they'll take a five-gallon bucket, put cow manure in there and warm water and kind of mash it up, dip the ghillie suit in there. It, it is effective. When that baby dries, they will not smell you. You will smell you, but they will not. <laughs> Go get those choice clothes. Ooh, yeah. That's some crappy hunting gear. <laughs> I couldn't. I'm sorry. I can't let puns that are that easy go. Rebecca goes, gets the smelliest of Esau's hunting clothes. Why? She knows dad's eyes are no good, but his nose could foil this plot. So she puts the skins of the uh, kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Verse 17, then she gave the savory food and bread, which she prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. And Isaac says, here, here he is, he's suspicious for good reason. How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And here it is. What a wicked manipulation. Because the Lord your God brought it to me. That is a wicked manipulation. This is actually the biblical definition of taking God's name in vain. When we hear that phrase, don't take the Lord's name in vain, you know what we usually think of? We think of the guy that like hits his you know, thumb with the hammer and he uses Jesus' name as a cuss word. Like that's taking the Lord's name. And that's true. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. But that's not all that that phrase entails. This is actually more what that phrase is talking about. Taking the Lord's name in vain. Not just blaspheming. That's blaspheming Christ's name. Okay? When you, you take the highest name given under heaven and you substitute it for your cuss word, that's blasphemy actually. Okay? Not, not the unforgivable sin kind of blasphemy. Don't get me wrong. But it is, it's blaspheming Christ's name. But taking God's name in vain is also using his name to manipulate someone else for your own gain. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. That is wicked. And that's exactly what he's doing right here. Let me tell you how it's often done today. Well, God told me. Mm -hmm. Got this great investment opportunity. I was praying about who to share this with. This is actual conversation I've had. Okay? Praying about who to share this with. And, and I really felt like God told me to call you. I'm just letting you know, if you would like a 100% effective way to make sure I will not get involved in whatever it is, try that with me. I'm not going to do it. Like full stop, full breaks, it could be the greatest investment scheme in the world. I'm going to find somebody else to invest with then. I hate that. It is wicked. It is evil. It is manipulative. And I see it all the time. God told me. I, can't, I cannot tell you how many lives I saw wrecked with that kind of nonsense when I was a pastor in a Word of Faith church years ago. Literally had somebody come up to me and tell me one time, I'm a prophet and God told me you're supposed to marry my granddaughter. How do you respond to that? Uh, well, crazy. Here I am and God didn't talk to me about it. How strange. What a weird way for God to communicate. One particular, this is in that same church, one particular prophetess came to me one day, said, the Lord's given me a word to share with the youth group. I said, okay, why don't you write it down and I'll read it. No, 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 that's not how it works. I need to deliver it to the youth group. I got to speak it. 
I said, really? Well, the scripture says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. It's not like the spirit just overtakes you and you can't help it. Right? It also says that as a shepherd, I'm not supposed to, I'm supposed to test the spirits. So if you want to, again, if you want to write it down, I'd be glad to read it, but I'm not going to let you just get up in front of this group and speak. Um, man, that she was very angry. In fact, she eventually left the church over that, believe it or not. She could not believe a lowly little pastor. That was the conversation. Oh, you're just a little pastor. I'm a prophet. Cool. There's a big world out there. Knock yourself out. Go prophesy. But you ain't doing it here. I was quenching the spirit, which is, that's almost like blasphemy in a word of faith church. How dare you? Getting in the way of my ministry to the saints. That is literally taking the Lord's name in vain. Really, she was just a wolf who was attempting to use prophetic words to draw out disciples after herself, which is exactly what Acts chapter 20 warns us against. And by the way, that kind of wicked, manipulative garbage goes on in churches in America day after day after day. And we're going to see more of it as more of that nonsense, that word of faith nonsense, makes its way into Baptist churches like Jesus Calling books. Listen, don't allow yourself to be intimidated or manipulated by that. That is literally taking the Lord's name in vain. Stand firm. Don't be intimidated by that. Kind of getting off on a rabbit trail. 21, Isaac says to Jacob, please come near that I might feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and felt of him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Imagine Jacob. Uh, yeah, I'm your son Esau. <clears throat> I'm your son Esau. I'm your son Esau. Like you can't cover up your voice, can you? So he didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. And so he blessed him and he said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob said, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I'll eat of my son's game so that my soul might bless you. And so he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near me now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing and he blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. In case you're missing this, a field the Lord has blessed has a lot of life in it and a lot of livestock give off some very aromatic things like manure. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who blessed you. Now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from hunting. So here's the real irony. The irony was Esau's hunt was quick. 31, he also had made savory food and he brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. I mean, I can just see him, can't you? Just, just the triumph has come. Triumph and he brings this food into his father and his father says, who are you? He said, I'm your son, your, your firstborn Esau. 
Then Isaac trembled exceedingly. And he said, who? Where's the one who hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate all of it before you came and I've blessed him. Yes, and indeed he shall be blessed. Isaac is likely very scared here. He knows that Esau is unpredictable temper. When people get frightened enough, by the way, they start to lose uh, control over some of their muscular functions. Strangely enough, if they get frightened enough, that's why they tremble. Their leg muscles, they start losing a little bit of control of their leg muscles. They start trembling. My knees were knocking in fear. That's that. Sometimes people get scared enough, they get frozen in fear. Oh, they can't move. If people get scared enough, they can actually lose uh, the function of their, their bathroom function, basically. They can wet themselves and, and worse. All right? Isaac is trembling. The reality of the situation is setting in. 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? And here's the irony. He's right. For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. It's not entirely true. And now look, he's taken away my blessing. And he said, have, have you not reserved a blessing for me? <laughs> Listen, Esau is not thinking about the spiritual implications of this, which is what Jacob was after. Jacob wants, I want your God to be my God. I want him who has provided and protected you. I want him to do that for me. I want to know him. And if I have to trick and deceive my way into it, I will. That's Jacob's thought process. Sometimes people would say it's, it's the right thing for the wrong reason. All right, well, the, the ends, in his mind, he's a pragmatist. That's why he said he could be Southern Baptist. He's a pragmatist. Well, the ends justify the means here, right? Esau's not thinking of that. What is Esau thinking of? It's the family business. Look at all the livestock and the cattle out there. I, I, I'm going to be a really wealthy man if I get the double portion. That's what he cares about. He doesn't care about the God. He cares about the things that God can give him. Let me say that one more time. Esau doesn't care about God. He cares about the things God can give him. There's an entire vein of pseudo-Christianity that does exactly that. Have you only one blessing, my father? Verse 38. Bless me also. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling will be the fatness of the earth and the dew of the heaven from above. By your sword you will live and you'll serve your brother. And it will come to pass when you become restless that you'll break his yoke from your neck. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with, his, with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father at hand. But then I'll kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older brother, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran. This is, this is the height of irony. This is how God works. And stay with him for a few days until your brother's fury turns away. 45, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Yeah, she's taking the blame, isn't she? And then I'll send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you also both in one day? 
By the way, those few days would turn into 20 years. In fact, this would be the last time she would ever see her son's face. She would die before seeing him return. That's the price of her scheming, conniving sin. Her favorite son would be taken away and she would never see his face again for the rest of her life. And that's because of her scheme. That's heartbreaking and it's tragic. Let's go on. I've got to get through this quickly. And Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like those who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Of course, this is a reference to Esau's wives who were pagans. Why would Esau take a wife that's a pagan? Because he couldn't care less about God. And so Rebecca is basically making up a story where she can get Jacob out without him getting killed. Right? Verse, or, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, You'll not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethel, your fo- uh, mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you might inherit the land in which you're a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paden Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And thus begins Jacob's journey. That's as far as we're going to cover in the text today. Thus begins Jacob's formative journey to Laban's house. You think Jacob is a deceiver? Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Jacob is going to go to work for the master of the craft. When it comes to deception, Laban is a pro and Jacob's still in the minor leagues. He needs help from his mama at 77 to get it pulled off. Jacob is going to get a good taste of his own medicine under Laban's watch. And you know what? That's a great thing. Sometimes getting a belly full of your own sin, the sin that you love... You get a belly full of it from somebody else. Sometimes you don't quite love it just as much then. Sometimes that's what it takes for you to start to actually hate the sin. I've got news for you. You will not get free of any sin you still love. And conversely, any sin that has power in your life has power in your life only because of one thing. Whether you want to admit it or not, it's because in some way you still love it. How in the world... Will God break that love of the sin? Sometimes it's letting you get a belly full of it from somebody else. How strange that when, when it's in us, we can't see it. And yet when it's pouring out of somebody else, it's so obvious. God's put Jacob in an intensive school to prepare him to be the next patriarch. And the curriculum's going to have a lot of hard knocks in it. But Jacob is going to return a seasoned, shrewd, skilled, tough man of God. And he's none of those things right now. He will not return the same way he left. He'll be a man who will no longer be depending on his own schemes to make it. He'll be depending on God. God is going to put his hip out of socket and show him, I am the one who's going to protect you. You can't protect you. And frankly, that's the real beauty and hope of this passage. And I'll close by saying that. The beauty and hope of this passage is that God can use broken and dysfunctional people to do his work. And that's an awfully good thing, by the way, because that's the only kind of people you're going to find on this earth. Have you really messed up? 
Do you really have a dysfunctional past? Do you really maybe have a dysfunctional present? Maybe like Jacob, you come from a family that puts the fun in dysfunctional. I, I come from that. I've got an uncle that's been on the FBI's most wanted list. Not most wanted list, the wanted list, not the top hundred. Schemed people out of more than $2 million in, in various states like, hey, trust me, I understand dysfunctional family. Take heart, my friend. God is still in control of your destiny. He is still at work in you, both to will and do to his good pleasure. He does not decide to get rid of you because you've got a dysfunctional family, dysfunctional past. Be encouraged. He is working through broken people. He still accomplishes his sovereign will through the efforts of stained and broken sinners. And that's good because that's the only kind of people you'll find on this earth. So if that's you, if you're a stained, broken, sin-ravaged person... Good news, you're qualified to be Jesus' disciple. Look to him, look to the cross. Let him be the father you've always needed. He's the only one that can put the pieces back together. If you are alienated from God today, that's how I'll close, by saying this. What a perfect day to be reconciled to God. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5 that that we are God's ambassadors and we are imploring you to be reconciled to God. On this Father's Day, if that's you, may God truly become your heavenly Father. And if you're already a believer, may this message be a reminder to you that no matter how broken and dysfunctional you are, God is still at work. He hasn't given up on you. He's not ashamed to be called your God. He's still your Father. And He's still walking with you through it. He's not sending you through the school of hard knocks. He's walking with you through it. He'll not leave you. He'll not forsake you. Forever you are his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I know it's a lot that we've gone through today, Lord, but I ask that you would um, be on our hearts, Lord. Let our eyes shift to you, to the cross, that you might be the one who puts the broken pieces back together again, that you might be the one who reconciles us to Christ and the works and wills in our lives for your glory. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Very sorry. If you stand with me, we'll sing together.